we're, we're not going to be a sacrifice zone. Like we should not have to give anything away for us to try to have some prosperity. We are just mm-hmm. as deserving to have homes here. We're just as deserving to build families here. And we're just as deserving to exist. So, Hello and welcome to Lakes Chat, the show that dives into all things Great Lakes. I'm your host, Jennifer Caddick with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. In today's episode, we're talking with Oscar Sanchez, the Community Planning Manager at Southeast Environmental Task Force, an environmental nonprofit dedicated to serving the southeast side and south suburbs of Chicago. We'll talk with Oscar about the community's recent big win to stop General Iron, a major industrial facility proposed for the community, and Calumet Connect, a community-led effort focused on sustainable economic development along the Calumet River, which is a tributary to Lake Michigan. Welcome, Oscar. Thanks so much for joining us. Hola, hola. Happy to be here. Excited to be here. Uh. <laughs> so let's start with a little background. Uh, the Southeast Environmental Task Force has been a major force and a major leader in the environmental justice and sustainability movements in Chicago for, I think, over 30 years. So tell us a little bit about the organization. Yeah, so the Southeast Environmental Task Force is an environmental nonprofit or dedicated to serving uh, the southeast side and south suburbs of Chicago by promoting environmental education, pollution prevention, and sustainable development, right? So this, you know, we've been talking about addressing environmental burdens and seeking restorative justice for affected communities. Um, you know, giving some dates, it was formed back in, eight, in 1989 by Miriam Brines, continued by Peggy Salazar, and now is being led by Olga Batista. And, you know, it's it's something where, um, you really see how organizing isn't just something very strict and formal or something gritty. It can be something that's very restorative and filled with wholesome moments of just addressing the needs of the people. Um, and the South Dimitri does this in many ways by having community listening sessions, by asking folks to just tell their stories. It's an organization that does fight environmental does fight for environmental justice, but is also an organization that truly listens to the needs of people because we talk about the intersectionality, right? Many people don't understand that environmental racism is connected to literally many of the factors around the city, like racist housing policy, going back to like 1989 and the creation of uh, Real Estate Association of Chicago. And so there's so many profound connections and you know, we're not trying to fight all of it, but specifically the looking at the resulting um, or byproducts of racism, addressing environmental racism and fighting for justice is something that, you know, I've admired from this organization. And Peggy Salazar was one of my good mentors before I was even working for this organization. And, you know, Olga Batista was as well. And I'm just very happy to be with this organization fighting for the needs of the people. That's great. You know, a a lot of people outside of Chicago, um, and honestly, probably many in Chicago, don't know about the Calumet River and frankly have a lot of preconceived notions about the Southeast side's environment. Um, But, you know, we know that, and you know, the Calumet River and the Lake Michigan shoreline on the Southeast side of the city are just so rich and filled with, uh, you know, environmental and outdoor recreation opportunities. Can you describe for our listeners a little bit about the Calumet River area? So the Calumet River is basically, um, how do I even explain it? Basically, you can almost say it's like it's, it's a canal, right? It's a channel of water that, 
you know, seemed, seemed as, a, as a powerful resource. And even to this day, we see it as a powerful resource and potential in changing um, this community. But just to, to give back some context, um, this channel was used predominantly for um, industries, right? And this is something that industries have taken, um, have expanded, and have really transformed to be the use of industry. And when I keep repeating industry, it's to give the image that this is an area dominated by industry right now. Currently, there's about 70 different operations happening here in the southeast side, many alongside the river. So you must imagine with all this industry, it has a very different appearance than most rivers. And with that being said, it is just it looks it looks like something as a almost apocalyptic um, in the sense of how it's so, you know, filled with rustic meadows. You can see it all. You you look at it and you know, when I was younger, I would always tell my parents, I'm like, I want to jump in the river and like, no, 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 no. And it's very contrary. It's very, you can see the contrast between the north side and south side, specifically with the, just the rivers. In the north side, people are, are, are they're, they're, they're swimming. They're in, can, they're in kayak, they're kayaking. And it's such a different experience. So um, again, let's think about it and the way that the city has done, you know, this, this planning around us, these communities is that in the north side with affluent um, white communities, they provided uh, amenities and resources in the river there is used as something as a recreational, right? And it has transformed from being industry. Um, they're modernizing and saying, we're going to make it more recreational. And the Southeast side with the Kaimit River, it's something still industrial and it's something still something to be exploited and used as a resource for, you know, all these different industries that are continuing to provide revenue for the city. So it's very different ways of looking at what capital looks like from the North side to the South side. Yeah, and I think that raises such a really important point, um, you know, that especially for listeners who aren't in the Chicago area, right? Like the city has poured, as you've talked about, you know, funding into the north side to really maximize access to the waterfront, to the rivers up there. um, And also, um, but has not done as much on the south side or the southeast side. And I think for our listeners who aren't in Chicago, you pointed that out. I think it's really important to note that the north side is predominantly white, right? The southeast side is primarily Black and Latino. Um, and talk a little bit more about some of the differences you see, you know, between, you know, how economic development is being managed in the north side of the city versus what's happening in the south side of the city. And I know the general iron facility debate really hinged with sort of a, a very uh, kind of dramatic test case of that. Yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, this makes me really think about when it comes to investment, you know, how in the 1930s, Chicago created a, a map um, when it came to housing and seeing what was the most desirable and what was like the most like undesirable, what's hazardous. And what you saw is that the most desirable were in, in you know, north side white communities and the least desirable were in, you know, Latinx and in black communities. And they were, you know, shaded in red. And what we can see is that because those land was seen as undesirable, those pricings were very low and it was very easy for companies to come in, buy very cheaply and do as they wanted. And what happened to these areas, they ended up becoming like with zoning, uh, becoming industrial corridors. So that is like the like the very big contrast that you're able to see is the way that from the beginning, um, you know, how things were designed 
to really shape the scope of like what is building wealth for some individuals and what is being detrimental to people's health and others. And with that being said, um, you know, the very big contrast that we see because of these issues, um, we see them a lot in the summer. I am really looking forward to the summer, but also there's heating problems. Um, there's a very, like people may see, may think that one degree, two degrees is not that much of a difference, but it can literally have, have someone have a heat stroke. So in Southside communities, we have a heating issue. And because we have a heating issue, we also have a consumption issue of like AC or like our bills are higher when it comes to um, even roofing. The way that the weather is hitting us is a bit different, especially at the lakefront with like communities like South Shore and South Chicago. So a lot of those things you can see are connected to like the industry and even diesel trucks, air quality, water quality. Um, So those things are very prominent. And even the investment you see, you know, a lot of people grow up with this, you know, kind of this conditioning saying, hey, like, be happy with what you get or like this is your community and talk about it. But I remember going to going to high school at George Washington and here in the, in, in the east side. And I remember like the roof was caving in and I remember there was rats. And I remember I had some there were some like students that like went on the news and complained about it. And I'm like, why are you why are you snitching on us? But I think that's some of some of the conditioning we had to just be so accepting of it. But I think there's a time and realization that that we fought, that we, we, we that came up in a campaign. I probably, we're probably going to be talking about with General Iron is that just because we're poor does not mean we should be treated poorly. And in the same sense, like you know, if this is not this, if something's not good for one community, who's to say it's good for another community? Yeah. And I think that's a really powerful distinction um, that played out, you know, very visibly for for across the city. And I know Southeast Environmental Task Force really led a lot of the efforts to get publicity around the general iron issue. And tell us a little bit about general iron, because it was a it's a some sort of metal processing facility that was essentially kind of kicked out of the north side. And they said, well, we'll put it down here in the Calumet corridor, getting at that idea of. It's not not okay for the north side of the city, but, you know, was seen as ex- acceptable um, for the south side. So tell us a little bit about, like, what is General Iron and what's their business and why was it problematic? Yeah, so General Iron is a, a metal shredding company from Lincoln Park, um, a north side community. And it had a large amount of violations. Um, the operations are, are questionable. Um and it's reiterating the the it's reiterating the the notion we mentioned a bit earlier about what the, the city of Chicago hasn't hasn't planned for the north side, and you know th- this community is going through a modernization initiative to to take out these um, you know companies and and move them somewhere else. They're not having the north side no longer. So, in very short, you know the city planned to say, hey, we want to move General Iron from you know the north side to some south side community. And then there was a backdoor deal between General Iron and um, with the city saying, hey, we're going to help with this. We're going to help move you. And what the city ended up doing is that even to now, like they've given over $1.6 billion in subsidies to Lincoln Park to redevelop it. Um, and it just see it, when people ask us, like, what's the vision for the southeast side? I always reply, well, the, the first question is, ask us what would we do with $1.6 billion dollars? And I think we can let the community decide what what that would look like. But to just go further, it's so this company is coming from the north side to the south side, and it's again talking about you know it comes it's from a white affluent community to a black and brown community, and it was something where a lot of us were scared. You know, 
And a lot of companies know this is that, you know, it's a working community. You know, it's hard for community members to get involved. It's hard for them with their daily struggles. And a lot of times they do this. Be, and this is why these are industrial corridors or the way they are is because companies in the city know it's something where it's hard for community members to fight back. And this was a done deal. It was a backdoor deal. And people were scared. So from there, you know, activists came together and we fought. And we fought for many reasons, many saying, you know, this is the third company. They tried moving from the north side of the river to the south of the Kaima River. Um, another reason is that right now there's a 30-year life expectancy gap um, with, a, with a U Chicago study comparing Streeterville to uh, communities in Inglewood. And, you know, that this is before the pandemic. So and one of the biggest reasons we said this is that we should not be trying to fight a polluter who has, you know, violations against respiratory um, not respiratory with air contamination, and we are in a respiratory, you know, endemic. So we wanted, we were thinking always about safety. So those are some of the backgrounds. And, you know, this the relocation was going to be across the street from a park. It was going to be across the street from a high school. And it was going to be an, a block away from an elementary school. And it goes into to the, the conversation of like, we, the Southeast side is labeled as an environmental justice community by the Environmental Protection Agency. And as a title, that means we are overburdened by industry. And But what does that mean for us if there's constantly new people wanting to come in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and something we've always said is that if the zoning says we're a dumping site, if we're not being, you know, if we're only being used as a dumping site, we are a dumping site. And it's something very damaging for mental health or even stigmas for our youth. So... We, I remember, you know, Peggy Salazar, you know, once said this and, and like we all kept saying this afterwards, like we're, we're, we're not going to be a sacrifice zone. Like we should not have to give anything away for us to try to have some prosperity. We are just mm-hmm. as deserving to have homes here. We're just as deserving to build families here and we're just as deserving to exist. So that fight was really big and, you know, it's really, you know, it's really wholesome to, to look back and said we fought, you know, these past three years and said we won, right? So we were able to prevent this from happening. Right now there's an appeal going on from that um, that company. But just thinking about that is that we, we're happy we're here. You know, there's more work to be done. Um, there's more things for us to talk about. But I think, you know, some of the next steps look like for us visioning what the community would mm-hmm. look like. Yeah. And I think just reiterating, that was a a huge win. You know, the city denied, uh, you know, a key permit, which um, sounds like there's appeals and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, it was definitely a a people power grassroots movement um, to stop that facility and really raise awareness about some of those disparities. And I think, um, you know, I just want to call it that stat you gave us, which is just eye popping for um, I think so many of us, you know, that there's a 30 year life expectancy gap between, you know, Streeterville, which is in the north side, um, you know, a, a very affluent community um, and Inglewood on the south side. And, you know, I think people hear about these facilities and say, oh, it's just somebody it isn't just a NIMBY, you know, that there are actual health impacts and it's impacting people's lives. Um, and that was certainly an issue that came out very directly in this fight. And I know some of the community members actually went so far as to stage a hunger strike um, to raise awareness about the issue. Yeah. And that's, you know, there. everybody looks at organizing many different ways, right? 
And there's, you know, the quote unquote, the right ways and this quote unquote, you know, other different tactics. Right. And but we what we decided to do is we we wanted to do everything in the sense of like making sure committee members understood why we did different tactics. So we got them involved. So we participated in community input sessions. Right. The first one, we had to turn out about 100 people at that meeting. And again, we're a low income community and, you know, Internet access here is very different than in other communities. So we had people doing that. And at the same time, after, you know, the uprisings of George Floyd and, you know, different organizations here in the Southeast participated, I myself with, you know, the Southeast Youth Alliance, we, we had a demonstration in South Chicago for solidarity with Black Lives Matters. You know, we started asking, what is racism in the Southeast side? And, you know, we, we addressed anti-Blackness, but, you know, we started talking to some of our mentors, like, again, Peggy Salazar and Olga Batista, and they, they, they explained general eye to us. And then we were angry and they said, we're going to get involved. But from, from that time in the summer to the fall, we, we said, how are we going to do this? And we said, community input sessions. And then we had inspirations for what happened that summer. Like, let's do protests, you know. And we, we had two ways. Like, you can be direct action or you want to be part of, like, you know, this different, these, these kind of, like, input sessions. And community members saw how much they're being silenced at these input sessions. And we, people said, like, we want to do more things. We will get more involved. And, you know, by December, we had over 500 community members saying they didn't want this polluter and we've done various protests we did one at our local um representative's house at other woman garza's we've also went up to Lori lifeless home and we just try to do everything to advocate for our community because you know again we look at these life expectancy gaps and we look at the way we're just treated you know it's something where people ask ask is like why why go so far and it's always that notion saying if someone's looking to harm your sibling or your parents mm -hmm. or your loved one, how far are you willing to go? And that's what happened is that around December, you know, and, you know, in late January, the city said, hey, we're going to delay this permitting process. Um, a week later, you know, they said, hey, we have, you know, this new application. You know, we want to run, run, expand the community input session on this in the, in the sense of like emails and you you can comment on it so the original application was 250 pages and in about two three weeks it then became 1250 pages and they gave us about a week to respond to that a week two weeks to respond to that and you know it's a thousand pages of technical terms you know i'm not a scientist we we've had to become the experts in knowing this content i'm not a doctor um, but we had people that, that are have been motivated to become doctors um and we had some you know you know help but that was the urgency. We said, what, what will it take? And we looked at inspiration um, throughout Chicago's history. And, you know, just looking at 2001, Little Village um, hunger strike to like um, diet high schools, hunger strike, uh, with Jenna Taylor. And, you know, we had a connect with uh, a connection with Jenna Taylor. She spoke with us and said, you know, what you're doing is righteous and I'm here to support. And we, we, decided to go on a hunger strike. And I think it's really traumatizing. I mean, people are like, oh, we, we were able to do this. And I just want to say, like, I'm not proud. You know, it's amazing I, the, the power we built with people. But to say that it took a hunger strike for 30 days to be able to mm -hmm. begin having the attention needed for this is very, you know, damaging. Um, the North said didn't have to go on the hunger strike. Yeah. Right? It's very different. But we went on a hunger strike. Um, I'm myself, uh, Chuck Stark, Brandon Bertacci, and then later joined by Yesenia Chavez and Jane Mazzone and Maritza Ramos. You know, it was something where we began this um, to really advocate and we just grew. 
from local news to citywide Mm -hmm. to statewide, national, even to international. And we just build. We kept saying, we we, again, we always have the notion, the the saying, when the people fight, the people win. Um, And it's just about, you know, getting organized. So we fought. And at the end of the hunger strike, uh, like a month later, um, with uh, the head of the uh, the EPA, they intervened, saying, sending a letter to Lori Lightfoot saying, "Hey, I recommend you delay this process and you begin having a cumulative impact study." And they did that. Um, the The mayor said, "Hey, I'm going to go with the suggestion." Again, the federal EPA cannot intervene; they can only suggest things. Mm-hmm. And Lori Lightfoot said, "You know, let's do this." But then again, when it came to cumulative impact, we we didn't trust the process because the same people, part of that process, were the people we were protesting. We're protesting the city. The city was a, a part of it. We're protesting the EPA. The EPA was a part of it. The Illinois EPA specifically. Um, so you had all, and then the, the the Chicago Department of Public Health. Again, we were protesting them with Dr. Wadi, and again, they are part of that process. So we didn't trust the process. We kept saying community voice should be at the forefront, especially mm-hmm. addressing these uh, discrepancies, but um, we kept fighting. And even later that year, I, that the same year we did the hunger strike in that fall, um, organizers got arrested, you know, doing a demonstration in Dr. Wadi's home. So I just want to reiterate that, you know, we did, we did everything because we absolutely love our communities. And we understand that in order to really try to create a vision for a community, we have to put our life on the line sometimes. And it's mm-hmm. hard. It's hard to realize that, but we we were able to do this. And I know this means everything to our community, right? This victory, you know, it reinforces how when the people fight, the people win. Um, you know, the South Side has been in the hands of the city and industries for decades, and it still does. But we've organized to build power to not allow this legacy to continue. Um, we're not a sacrifice zone, and we're going to keep fighting for that vision that we're not. We are a zone um, to breed life, uh, to bring life, to give life to each other, and it's something very, you know, I just look back and I'm like, wow, you know, it was worth it, worth it to be where we are now. Yeah. yeah. And I think the, you know, the, the Calumet Connect initiative, which you briefly mentioned, you know, I think that's a really powerful example of the community coming together um, to build that vision from the ground up, as opposed to having the city come in or some industry or somebody else come in and say, here's what it's going to be. So tell us a little bit about Calumet Connect and, and the intersectionality of, of who's involved in that, in that initiative. Yeah. So Kayama Connect is, you know, a community-led initiative focused on creating sustainable and like, healthy futures for the, the Kayama Corridor. And this means the river and the communities adjacent to it, which is the communities that I live in and the communities that I work in. Um, and it was formed to change the vision of the Southeast side, but considering the health burdens the industry has had. Um, and there are always city initiatives of you know, throughout decades, you know, I, I thought like, oh, this is brand new. Like, you know, the city's hearing us. But for years and decades, the city has always tried to do planning surrounding community voices. But I think that they've never been intentional about amplifying the most vulnerable voices. So with this co- like this like coalition, you're seeking to amplify the voices and messages of our community members to make this change possible. Um, a new Southeast side it will come and it will be for everyone. Right. That's that's the goal. And, you know, this is based off, you know, the, the work of a community member, Olga Batista, you know, a longtime resident here in the southeast side who helped lead this project with Alliance for the, Alliance for the Great Lakes. And 
what's really great about this is that it really shows the, the intention of this being community-led. Oh, we started this process three years ago. I'm, you know, honored to, to continue this process and this cohort. But it was really built upon the principles and values that, like, we are looking to amplify those voices and the goal saying, like, we are looking to, to intervene, continuously intervene and propose our ideas when it comes to this. And at, during this time also was um, something create, they, were, they were looking on creating called the Climate Connect data book, uh, which brought, you know, information on land use, uh, health outcomes, services, permitting violations from local industry facilities, and, you know, all this information. Like we, we the city always said, hey, well, where's the data? Or, hey, who were your experts? And like, it's it's kind of nice to be able to say like, flash them like, hey, we got, we got this. We have this resource we built together because it painted a clear picture that, you know, we don't, we are overburdened. And I think people don't understand what it means to be overburdened. Um, you know, any type of pollution is too much pollution to have in a community. And to build this, you know, collection of data alongside this collective of people to work towards this vision is just, you know, phenomenal. And, you know, I'm really excited to continue building with folks with like visioning of like what is next to the Southeast side. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful example. And it, it is, uh, you know, another example of our, our various institutions failing the community, right? You know, it's like that the community had to come together through Calumet Connect to create their own data book for the city and say, okay, fine, you keep asking us for the data, because I know the researchers who worked on that and the community members had to go to a bazillion different agencies, right? There's the environmental agencies and bring that together with the health information and the land use information um, and also community stories. There's a, there's a, um, you know, a qualitative section in there that, that asked community members to share their stories. I think that's a really powerful example of some of the grass up grassroots um, up work that's happening in, in the Calumet area. Mm -hmm. So what's next? You know, you've, you've got the, the win on General Iron. It sounds like there's still a lot more work to be done to make sure the appeals are, you know, that still is a facility is still denied. Um, you know, the Calumet Connect process is taking off. Um, kind of what do you see next for, for the community and for this effort? I'm, I'm, I don't know how to explain it, right? Like I am, I'm excited. I, I'm really excited um because it's it's about reclaiming these spaces it's about reclaiming the southeast side to what community wants and we talk about like nature and healing right what does it look like for us to be more involved in nature we have phenomenal green spaces here beautiful green spaces we have wolf lake eggers grove they just built big marsh uh, a bike park and even with that we have to create accessibility towards it but there's so many green spaces that we have here close to us you know i live near you know man park there's a huge park so I think it's like how we start reclaiming, you know, our time in general. I think that we, we are always on this mindset that we always have to be productive, but it's like, how can we reclaim nature and ourselves and have a healing process through that? Um, when it comes to the Southeast side, I think the vision for the Southeast side is up to the community, but I think it's time for us to really talk about accountability and look at what does restorative work look like, um, especially for many of our affected families and many of our affected families um, or everyone almost has asthma or respiratory issues here in the southeast side. So it's like, how do we how do we address that and make sure that, you know, these people are taken care of and all of us are taken care of. And when it just comes to the visioning, you know, for the southeast side, I think it's continuing to fight for the communities we deserve 
And I, I always say it's we it's fighting for the communities that we we are owed, right? We've us alongside all these other communities, uh, black and brown communities have been neglected, have been intentionally neglected, have been intentionally silenced, and have been intentionally um, made you know you know quote unquote weak to not have political power or wealth that you know we are owed you know not just a space space on the, on the table but for us to have a decision-making about what our future looks like. You know? Well, thank you so much, Oscar, for joining us today and for sharing your experience and your knowledge about the community um, and all these issues with our listeners. Um, we'll be sure to put up on our website, greatlakes.org slash lakeschat, links to the Southeast Environmental Task Force um, and to the data book and some of the other things that, that we talked about in the conversation today. So thank you so much, Oscar. I really appreciate you taking the time with us. So I appreciate you. Hope you have a beautiful day. Thanks so much. You too. Take care. Thank you for listening. On our website, greatlakes.org slash lakeschat, you'll find links to more information about the topics that we talked about today. And you can also sign up for updates to stay in the know about Great Lakes issues and opportunities to get involved. We're taking a break next week and we'll be back on May 3rd with a new episode. Special thank you to my colleague, Michelle Farley, who produces this podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you'll know when the next episode drops. Thanks for listening.